So I was about to come on and tell you guys about this CNN story that I read. And here's how it goes. The House Democrats are a little worried. They're worried because impeachment is a momentum game. Impeachment is a drumbeat that needs to get increasingly close together so by the time that the decision is on their desk that they need to decide whether or not they are going to impeach a sitting president and therefore open the door to do something that has never been done in American history, throw it to the Senate so they might remove a sitting president, and in this case, a sitting president in their first term less than a year before an election, most likely, that that drumbeat has reached such a fevered pitch that they will be able to say we had no choice but to make this decision. So why are they nervous? Well, because the drum hasn't exactly beat as fast lately. In fact, you could make the argument that if it weren't for Mick Mulvaney coming out and telling on himself for no apparent reason, then the impeachment inquiry would be, at least in terms of mainstream news coverage of it, stalled. Sure, there's more to go, but the initial whistleblower hasn't testified. And as far as we know, the transcript of that call between Trump and the Ukrainian President Zelensky is what it is. No one's disputed that it's a cover-up or deleting things that were said. So you gotta figure, with the shadow of that story that came out on Monday, that today, Tuesday, when I'm recording this, there's a lot hanging on today's hearing. That is a hearing with William Taylor. William Taylor was Trump's top envoy to the Ukraine. And today, he delivered. He told House impeachment investigators, according to Politico, that intense efforts by administration officials to secure politically motivated investigations of Trump's rivals in exchange for a White House meeting and critical military aid. This was met with gasps, according to Politico's reporting, with somebody in the room. Jim Jordan, the president's fiercest defender in the room, did not say much to reporters on the way out. This would, up until this exact point, represent the clearest indication that indeed there was a quid pro quo behind the scenes if not on that call itself. So if you're Adam Schiff, if you're the Democrats, you're like, give me that drumstick, baby, because we are back to beaten. And just as you're refreshing all the political news sites, all the sites that you know will be showing your handiwork, boom. A lodestar blinds you. Remember that anonymous New York Times op-ed? Oh, how young we were. The New York Times publishing an anonymous resistance voice from within the Trump administration? Oh, how much guessing we made. Uh, who was it? Why were they doing it? 
Well, that author has now written a full book. Yes, and it's going to come out soon. It was announced today. That author is still anonymous. There's also no indication that there's any, like, crimes discussed. It just kind of says that Donald Trump is impetuous and petty and mean and everybody around him tries to pick up for him and just guard the nation from his worst instincts. You know, kind of stuff that even like hardcore Trump fans probably know. Yeah. And they're not going to reveal their identity either. And they won't say if they still work in the White House. But it's getting a lot of publicity. In fact, as I'm recording this, it's getting more publicity on CNN and Twitter than, you know. In fact, it's kind of getting more publicity than this William Taylor testimony. That's unfortunate for the Democrats. Now, I'm not saying impeachment is out of gas, but if it is, then part of this is a gamble that Adam Schiff would lose. Adam Schiff is the one who decided to hold these hearings behind closed doors. And if this hearing with William Taylor is as explosive, I mean, let me, let me just read some of these quotes here. William Taylor prompted sighs and gasps when he read a 15-page opening statement. The body language of the hearing was holy S, seriously, said Representative Harley Ruda. Uh, Representative Stephen Lynch, a senior member of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, characterized the testimony as a sea change that could accelerate the impeachment inquiry. Almost as if those are the talking points, and they want to make sure that they rebut anybody who was saying that it was running out of gas. And finally, Democratic Representative Tom Malinowski of New Jersey said it was the most thorough accounting we've had of the timeline. Now, imagine if the country got to see that play out. You think that would dominate Twitter? You think that would dominate CNN? Do you think that would be more newsworthy than an anonymous chain letter turned book? Because I do. If this impeachment is slowing down, then you can blame Adam Schiff for hitting the brake. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young, joining you on October 22nd, 2019. We got a great show. Uh, uh, we have an interview that actually legitimately blew my mind. Rose McDermott is a professor that specializes in the psychology of politics, and you're going to hear a moment in this interview about 10 minutes in where, where I think we might crack why we are the way we are <laughs> to each other online. Like, it is, it is awesome. In fact, I'm not really going to waste 
a whole lot of time. I will remind everybody that you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can become a part of the $3 Club. You get a bonus episode on Monday. You get a bonus episode on Wednesday. Stay tuned. After the interview, I'm going to do a little bit of mailbag. But before we go any further, ladies and gentlemen, Rose McDermott. Politics! My guest is Rose McDermott. She is a professor of uh, international relations and political science at Brown University. And we are going to talk all about the psychology of campaigning and candidates. Rose, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Obviously, there is a psychological component to getting any kind of messaging out there. But if you were to separate politics out uh, specifically, are there any things that are anything that is unique to politics in in terms of how candidates try to connect with their audiences? I think there's probably a couple of things. One is I think that um, politicians who are very effective are really good at using emotional messaging. So they try to activate fear or anger or disgust or some other kind of really powerful emotion to get people on their side around particular issues. Um, And that includes manipulating people, making them feel something that they might not otherwise. Um, And I think the other is the stress on kind of um, negativity. So there's sort of, um, you know, we all have a tendency to pay more attention when we think something is going to be a danger to us, for example. And so stressing things that are a potential loss or risk or threat or, you know, something that could happen to you that's bad tends to be the kinds of things they emphasize because that's what they use to get your attention. There's less room for nuance. It's more about the absolute poles of your emotions that you are that you're being driven to. I think there's a lot less room for nuance for all kinds of reasons, partly because you are trying to reach a really broad audience. And so people are going to have different levels of sophistication and different levels of interest. And so in many ways, people are going for the lowest common denominator And you also oftentimes have very little time. And so people are also going for the soundbite, right? They're not going to have, you know, the hour-long interview where they go into depth. I mean, one of the things that's been particularly interesting about Andrew Yang's um, campaign to me is that Mm -hmm. he has done disproportionately well in these longer interview sessions, right? So he'll be on Freakonomics or, you know, one of these talk shows where he can go into depth about his arguments, And then you slowly see his poll numbers coming up in reaction to that. But that's really rare. I mean, mostly people are looking for the 30-second soundbite that has a really compelling emotional narrative to get people to join your team or, you know, come on your side or whatever. And so there's very, very little room for context or nuance or, um, you know, anything that's at a more sophisticated level. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned Yang because, and spoiler alert for whenever we air this, uh, we are talking as Andrew Yang is doing a 10 hour live stream where he's answering just people from the chat. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know he was doing that. Where is he doing that? Uh, on Twitter and, and, and his, and his YouTube. But, but that is, that is fascinating. That's that really if, if, interesting. Yeah. If you've well, understood. I think it's because he's learned, yeah. you know, like I, I heard him on, I think it was Michael Krasny up in the Bay area, you know, an hour long thing. And he said that he had seen increases in support when he did these longer discussions. And I think it's hard to penetrate because everything now is so dominated by social media, which is, 
you know, it's kind of induced ADHD, right? Everybody yeah. has 30 seconds on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and, you know, you have all these things. And so who's going to actually pay attention for any kind of in-depth discussion? And sometimes that's what you need to explain more complex issues like universal basic income, which is his thing. Yeah. And, and it kind of also, to me, seems like a reaction to what we have known as politics, because as you very astutely pointed out, if you are always being driven to these polls, right, and you are always uh, uh, being fed a soundbite, then now, by definition, the long form conversation becomes, uh, you know, something of value because it is you are going to stand out. You're going to be the black sheep in the herd. Yeah, and I think it's. I mean, as you point out, I think it's really true that you also get this. Um, you know, a uh, cycle that feeds on itself. So you only spend 10 seconds and then you decide that you're on the left or the right. And yeah. <laughs> then you only pay attention to stuff that's on the left and the right. And so you actually don't get contrasting information that might change your mind. And, you know, there's lots of different models in political science showing that like, you're only going to change your mind if you're exposed to information, but you're much less likely to be exposed if you're already really you know, educated and you've already made up your mind, right? So there's a very narrow band of people that will be exposed and aren't already so convinced of their position that they can actually change their mind. And, you know, I think social media has completely evacuated the middle, right? So there's no <laughs> Walter Cronkite where, you know, some national, um, you know, water cooler where everybody listens at six o'clock to the same information and then makes up their own mind about it. You know, some people are watching Fox and some people are watching MSNBC and never the twain shall meet. And so it makes it very difficult to back out of your polarized corners to achieve the kind of, you know, compromise that actually is the foundation of representative governance and democracy. And I do think that that is what, what, a thing that I've noticed, and, and specifically when you go watch old debates or, or news coverage of elections, is that social media has really given rise to the idea that you have an agency within a political right. campaign or exactly. movement. And so now it's not enough that you believe in the candidate's message. It's not enough that you are going to go vote for the candidate. It's not even enough that you are talking to your friends and explaining why you're so passionate. You need to conform to the talking points. Like you, right. they, everybody right. is their own surrogate. And you've seen this even with uh, you know the, the Twitter teams that all the candidates have, where they'll email people that have uh, donated and they know are are supporting the campaign to say, all right, here are in the same way that somebody would get it going on CNN or NBC or meet the press okay. or something. They get their literal talking points that you're copying and pasting into Twitter so you can shape the conversation. And you are arguing in the same way that a, a talking head would when somebody else is offering competing talking points. It's it's fascinating that that we've seen the the audience becomes such a lockstep part of the campaign itself as opposed to dispassionate observers if you know that ever really existed well i mean i think that that's super smart because one of the things that you really see is the downside of the internet right so it was given to us as this promise that would increase democratization and everybody would have a voice and isn't that great and isn't that what you want um and it's true that many more people can express themselves and reach millions more people than they would have been able to do otherwise immediately. But the downside is oftentimes they don't know 
what to think or how to think. And so what ends up happening is this enormous social pressure where where your friends are telling you you have to be this way or you're ostracized, right? Yeah. Um, and you have to be lockstep or you're ostracized. And that's where, you know, you see the downside and there's lots of work showing that the more time you spend on screens, the more depressed you are, the more anxious you are. You know, if it helps you build in-person bonds, it's great, but mostly it doesn't. It mostly keeps you on your screen. And then you think you have all these friends, but they're not your real friends, and they're only your friends if you agree with them. And so <laughs> it became becomes a very destructive cycle where you're not actually learning anything new or having more uh, in-depth deliberative discussions. You're just having these kinds of, um, you know, I'm going to retweet, I'm going to validate, I'm going to like, um, and you're not really putting a lot of in-depth thought into to what that means that, um, at a substantive policy level. I got to say, Rose, you are you are blowing my mind. We're like under 10 minutes in on this interview, and I think this is like the most I've ever really thought about why we are the way that we are politically right now, but it totally makes sense. If, if the messaging is always going to be short, bombastic, and fear-driven, right. right? And we are always, we have an increasing level of, of uh, a, a, a desire that the way that we can best affect the world is to drive in this campaign's direction, then of course all of our rhetoric to each other is going to echo what you know previously had been this kind of top level strategy to get people to the polls, right? To to motivate. It, it's a very yeah. concentrated message because it needs to travel miles and miles and miles. And now we're just stabbing each other with it because uh, uh, everything is so personal and close on social media. Well, that's why, you know, I mean, you can laugh at me, but that's why I actually hold Mark Zuckerberg responsible for the political polarization of America. I mean, I think Facebook is one of the most destructive political things that's ever come along. I mean, we can blame the Russians, but the Russians wouldn't have had a platform without Facebook, you know, and there's all kinds of studies showing how things, you know, get communicated politically through Facebook, not just politically, but other yeah. kinds of things. And now he comes out yesterday and he's like, oh, I'm not going to fact check things because we have to have free expression. You know, that used to be called lying. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and now it's called free expression. I mean, you know, it's like, OK, um, so we are supposed to ignore the fact that you could actually eliminate all these problems if you made Facebook a paid model, but you're not going to do it because you're actually making more profit off the information that you're stealing from people than you possibly could by charging them nine bucks a month. I mean, how did TV become the golden age? It's because Netflix charges you, you know, 10 bucks a month. Um, and so you get a lot of content that's awesome that you wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, why won't Facebook do it? Because they make a lot more money stealing your information. I mean, it's super destructive, but there's this, you know, notion and image that it's allowing a particular kind of democratization and a particular kind of free flow of information. Um, and it's hiding the fact that it's actually for the profit of, you know, very, very small number, extremely wealthy executives. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's super destructive. Well, I mean, look, Zuckerberg can't say anything else because there are two factors that are at play there. Number one, uh, being the referee for the truth is a, a battle you are almost always going to lose on the Internet if you are selling at that kind of level. And that gets to the absolutely. second point. No, you're absolutely right. That, yeah. that gets to the second point, And this is probably the larger one. They're an ad sales company like everything right. else that they do, no matter what they do, that is all a front for the fact that they make their money like Google selling advertisement. And so they don't want to step on 
the golden goose, right? Like that is that's that's why they make their money. I don't think they make their money advertising. I think they make their money by selling information. Well, I, I guess to I guess well, that, that's that that that's how they have become the advertising. So I, I don't think that we're oh yeah, yeah okay. they were far away. They, yeah. they sell uh, targeted ads because they have the information and because unlike display right, right, right. advertising, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can show metrics. Although considering how shifty they've been on metrics on stuff like video views and impressions, uh, I think that there's probably yet another shoe to drop on exactly how much you are watching the success or failure of an ad on there if they're already so uh, you know fast and loose with something that doesn't really make them all that much money in in video distribution yeah that's a really really good point and um i think you're right there's a lot more information to come out on that but there's also the piece that's a public health challenge right which is again the more time people spend um, with their virtual friends and the less time they have available for their real friends, they think that they're happy. But in fact, you know, there's now really good evidence that the more quote unquote friends you have on Facebook, the less, the fewer real life confidants you have. And that's actually what matters for your, you know, personal and mental and social well-being and health. So, you know, there's, there's the public health element to it as well as the political element, which is super destructive. And, Obviously, Facebook isn't the only thing. I'm just saying that Facebook facilitates this kind of, you know, everybody returning to their corners and socially sanctioning each other if they're not lockstep with the talking points that you so rightly raised become these kind of lowest common denominator agreements so that you can't say, oh, I object to, well, you know, welfare, you know, Medicare for all without being accused of being a fascist or a Nazi or, you know, whatever it is, whatever term of derogation somebody chooses. You know, I kind of just have this large question in my head, you know, from everything that we've talked about is all political messaging, although maybe necessary, harmful if we are if we are taking and abstracting uh, very complicated and serious issues into larger, maybe cartoonish, uh, but easy to understand narratives. And we're trying to do it in the most inflammatory, emotionally provoking language possible. Um, so I would say strongly no to that. And the reason I say no is that um, humans' advantage over other animals in the animal kingdom is that we're great cooperators and we're able to cooperate with people who aren't our biological kin. Mm-hmm. And great things get um, accomplished through collective action, meaning we cooperate for a shared mission. And when we cooperate for a shared mission, we can accomplish amazing things, right? We can go to the moon, we can win a world war, we can um, eradicate polio. I mean, mm-hmm. I could go on and on and we on. Can talk about, we can talk be... about succession. Yes, all the great right, achievements exactly. that we've made. Yes. And we can do that, but we have to be able to have collective action. We have to join together and all agree that we're going to pull on the same oar to accomplish a shared goal together. And an effective political leader can sell that. They can actually get people to believe that um, the things we want to accomplish together are greater than the identity issues that divide us. And the problem is, is that when everybody decides that they don't want to engage in a shared mission, I want to do my thing and you should do your thing and we shouldn't do it together, then nothing big can be accomplished because there's only so much an individual can do. But what a group of individuals cooperating can do is almost unlimited, right? But you have to be able to overcome your differences 
to get together for a shared activity and all decide that the mission is more important than individual identity. And that's what I think we're not so good at anymore. And that's partly a function of leadership and it's a partly a function of um, the individuation that's precipitated by things like social media. Yeah, I, I, I do. I can't help but think that one of the biggest things that we missed and, and I, I did a live show after the uh, midterms and, you know, the point I made was like, hey, you know, normally in an election, you, you get everybody gets really dialed in for about a year and mm-hmm. it's very passionate and you know, there's fights at the dinner table. And then there's this kind of cool down period where people just stop paying attention. Right. It's like, you know, maybe just a like if you didn't like the guy who got voted in, there's like a, a, a bah humbug hand wave toward the television during inauguration. But you kind of unplug. Right. And we right, got right. precious none of that. <laughs> like we everybody we had summer vacation and we decided to work through it. And now it's Monday and you got to go back to work because no, we're right and, in the middle of another cycle. Not just one, but seven different dumpster fires every day that you have to deal with right? Yeah, um, yeah. In, in lots of domains. And it's exhausting. And I think that's part of the function of it is to be constantly distracted so that you can't focus uh, in an intense way on any one issue, you know, whether it's Syria or impeachment or tax policy or immigration policy or, you know, whatever it is, healthcare. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I do think that that's really hard, but I think that, you know, an effective leader can marshal shared emotions to get people to cooperate on a collective mission. Um, and, you know, bad leaders can manipulate people to do that for a collective mission for their own personal political ambition. I mean, think about somebody like Hitler or Stalin, right? Super effective. It doesn't necessarily have to be for a positive goal, but they're able to marshal an enormous number of people behind them um, to accomplish, you know, um, horrific things. But you can also accomplish great things, you know. Um, think about somebody like Franklin Roosevelt or Winston Churchill, you know, who's able to to marshal under the worst of times a collective group of people to survive um, and and eventually um, emerge victorious under horrible conditions because they were able to get everybody to cooperate together for the collective good. And effective leaders can do that. Um, And the challenge becomes when people decide that my personal identity is more important than the shared mission. And then it becomes very challenging to accomplish large public projects for social good or social ill. Uh, I'll tell you what, I loved this chat. Uh, uh, Rose McDermott, a professor of international relations and political science at Brown University. Uh, Rose, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Politics. All right. Another thanks to Rose. I, I, I don't know. I even just listening back to that interview. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to her for coming on. Let's go ahead and get into something we haven't done in a bit, but your emails. You can always email this show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Michael wrote in about uh, one of the episodes last week. I have to say, I was a little disappointed in the show because I feel like you guys missed out on no-brainers for candidate fan nicknames. Specifically, Harris fans, few though they may be, they've got to be the Kamala Chameleons. 
Come on. Do it for Boy George. It's even almost her generation's music. No, no, no. Come on. You know she was listening to Tupac back in 1986. Though I was amused at you uh, living up to your email handle by not knowing about Harris Tweed. I did not. That is something that, and I don't think I'm even all that, I think I'm around the same age as uh, Heaton. And Heaton knew what Harris Tweed was. If you didn't listen to our, our candidate fan base nickname segment, go listen to Wednesday's show. Uh, I agree it's hard to come up with one for Mayor Pete. Maybe the Pete and Greeters. Oh, he could always stop in for some Pete and Greets. I love it. Sam writes in uh, about my conversation with Scott Johnson and Brian Ibbett on the morning stream that I ran on the show a few weeks ago. One thing I was taught in history class in high school was that global trade and increasing Western influence in the Chinese market was ultimately going to erode communism. And it would be the gateway to bring China into the democratic fold. I know. Funny. In retrospect, but it's worked fairly well in other parts of the world, including Japan after World War II, South Korea as recently as the early 90s. What I guess we missed the boat on was the fact that one billion person potential market tips the balance on that supply and demand education. Not sure if that's what China foresaw when they opened up the markets in the late 80s, early 90s, but it worked out pretty well for them. Anyway, that's my two cents. I've got a lot of family living in Hong Kong still, and the struggle there is pretty real. Sam, I agree, but it really depends on how you consider, you know, what is a win for capitalism, quote unquote. I'm using gigantic air quotes. And is the natural friend of capitalism democracy? Because certainly we have succeeded in China becoming more of a capitalist nation because we are allowed to sell things there. But that has also opened up for them more lanes where they need to use authoritarian action to knock down any kind of element that might stir up trouble, right? This is ultimately the problem with authoritarianism is that it's hard to maintain, right? Like you are running the world's most stressful game of SimCity as opposed to just kind of letting the computer take over a lot of the elements of it. And you have to make sure that you stay in a certain esteem of either respect or fear to enforce those laws. And then you factor in elements that uh, China has dealt with forever, including, I mean, hell, you know, working on this 1960 election podcast, Kimoy and Matsu are part of the 1960 debates, the famous Nixon versus Kennedy debates. This is the shorthand of the time for the United States protection of Taiwan. This is because China has long had this issue of not wanting to officially say that any part of China is not China while being forced to allow them, allow them to effectively live like independent states. This is something that they are desperate to avoid with Hong Kong. And they press their luck too hard. Again, authoritarianism becoming a perpetual problem machine. They had too big of a push with the extradition thing. And now Hong Kong is still on fire because they want to be separate. 
So the question then becomes, if you're in an authoritarian regime, does democracy come slowly? I tend to not believe so. I tend to believe that in a regime like China, democracy comes ugly. I don't even know what it's going to look like. God knows if it ever happens. But that will be... That one's going to be rough. That one's going to be ugly. All right. If you want to email the show, go ahead and do it. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Again, TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Put mailbag in the subject line. Because I get a lot of mail from the free political newsletter, which, of course, you can sign up for at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. But... Now I know. I know that you want to be uh, discussed in the mailbag. We'll be bringing this back periodically. So go ahead and do that. Another reminder also that if you are in Tennessee, Nashville, Music City, baby, Saturday night, I'm doing a meetup with Andrew Heaton. Location still TBD, but follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. Definitely a meetup, possibly a live show. We're trying to play it by year. But I'll be in Nashville for Politicon. Just uh, go ahead and follow me, and I'll make sure we'll all hang out. It'll be a great time. I want to thank our $10 tier, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join their ranks, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. All right, big show tomorrow. Here's what we're doing. We are going to talk about uh, the Yang Playbook. I got a big thing on the Yang playbook. We have a Brexit update with Tom. And man, the most Brexity, Brexity thing happened today. We're going to break it all down with him tomorrow uh, and much more. So head on back over here to the Politics, Politics, Politics show for our regular Wednesday program. And a little heads up for you guys. I think this is going to be the last week where we do a Tuesday, Wednesday format. Because the shows are getting a little bit bigger. They're getting a little bit more muscular. I'm trying to give you guys more of what you want. And I it's a little annoying if I have to do two of them on back-to-back days. So, especially like I just don't, I want to spread out so more news can happen. Because a lot of news is happening these days. So, I'll, I'll announce that officially tomorrow as well. That is it for today. Until tomorrow, politics has three names. Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, they talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about all Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>